you know, uh, we are, this is the last message if you heard from Second Peter. Uh, then for the next number of weeks, the rest of the year, we're going to be analysing four, I think it is, Christmas carols doctrinally. So modern popular Christmas carols to look at what they're actually teaching us. Uh, we'll do that so that in future when you sing those songs, you will be an expert on them and able to explain to everybody what they actually mean. Uh, and then next year, the first seven weeks of the year, we're going to look at the seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 to 3. So we're going to pull apart those churches of Revelation and see what they say to the church today. Uh, and then we'll be beginning the book of Hebrews from that point on after that. So that is what is coming up. All right, I have talked about this before, but I just want to bring your mind back to an illustration that is effective. It fits for where we're at in the book of Peter. Uh, and that was this, I wanted you to imagine that you were about to be adopted into the royal family and that that was a good thing. Okay, so I want you to think uh, that your adoption is official, it's definitely going to happen and you're going to get all the benefits and privileges thereof, palaces and servants and wealth, it's all going to be yours in a few weeks' time, but... You've just got to wait that little bit longer before it's all stamped and it's done. You're officially in the family. I put it to you that for that few weeks' time, you are going to start to live differently. You are going to start to think about what does it mean in terms of the way I speak? What does it mean in terms of the way I behave? I mean, you probably have to wear shoes, I mean, lame, um, right? There's all kinds of things that you're going to have to adapt to, that you're going to have to do as you expect and long for this exciting change that is coming your way. And this is the theme of many movies. As I said, I've watched The Princess Diaries so many times because I have daughters, okay? Let's just make that clear. Uh, and so... What happens in all those movies where somebody becomes a royal out of nowhere, there's always a scene or scenes where they are doing that exact thing, isn't there? Where they have to learn the behavioural standards of becoming a royal. And they're always hilarious because they're trying to do, you know, walk around with something balanced on their head and they fail and it's funny. Uh, but they, they have to go through these processes of learning to behave like a royal. It's always funny, but eventually they get there. Okay, that is what we see in these movies. But believe it or not, that is where we are at at the end of Second Peter. Okay, this is, this is where Peter's brought us to on this journey. I mentioned last week that three times in three verses, Peter mentions that you are to be waiting expectantly. You are to be longing for the return of Christ, the final judgment, the full ushering in of the kingdom of God where righteousness dwells. You are meant to, as a Christian, look around at the sin in this world, look around at the pain and the sorrow and the suffering, the brokenness, the rejection, the hurt, the, the being alone, all of these things. You're meant to look around at this world and say, it's not right. It's not how it's meant to be. But I know deep in my soul the day is coming when Christ himself 
will wipe every tear from my eye and the old order of suffering and pain will be gone, it will be finished and there will only be the glorious light of Christ in my life forevermore. How can you not long for that? How can you not wait for that expectantly is what Peter is saying. And Peter is saying, you have been, if you're a Christian, adopted into the royal family. You are God's child. In one sense, now, right, because Christ has done everything necessary for salvation, your salvation is guaranteed, but in one sense, it's not fully realized. That just means it's not your lived reality yet. Until that day when you die and you then wake to see Jesus face to face and in a moment you're made like him and all you will know forevermore is glorious grace of God. Peter says, live like you are waiting to join that family. Right? Live like you are expectantly hopeful of what is coming soon in your world. Right? Live like. So, so what does that mean? It means that you begin to read the scriptures, you begin to pray, you begin to hang out with other Christians, and you begin to learn what it's like to belong in the family of God. Okay, and if we followed us around with a camera, we could see those hilarious bloopers on the way, except they're really not that funny most of the time. When we trip up and we make mistakes and we don't live out what God desires from us, what do we do? We repent, and we keep moving forward, expectantly longing and waiting for our final and full adoption into the family of God. That's where Peter brings us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Peter, chapter 3, 14 to 18. 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait, that word wait is long for, these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Therefore, dear friends, or beloved, Peter is writing out of deep affection for the church. He would address us the same here this morning. Dear friends, beloved, right? Deep affection in the church. While we dwell together, longing for our home where God's righteousness dwells, right? This is the eager expectation of us as a church. As we wait for that day when our 
final redemption is fully realized, as I said, and you get to experience Christ's victory fully forevermore. Think of that day when you will not sin ever again. Oh, man. Bring it on, right? Bring it on. That's what we're waiting for. So Peter says, as you long for that, as you wait for that, make every effort to be without spot or blemish in God's sight, and so be at peace. As you long for that home, begin to live like you're there. Right? Get rid of the spots and blemishes. That's what Peter's saying. Begin to live in alignment with the kingdom of God that you're going to live under. And you will be at peace, by the way, when you live according to God's word. Now, this is something we've talked about a lot over the last few weeks, and we're going to refresh it again because we must understand this and get the balance right. We know salvation by works is wrong. Right? We know we're not saved by works. We know we are saved by grace through faith by the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you try to add works to what Jesus has done, you destroy grace and you are left again at the mercy of good works which you are unable to do. Read the whole book of Galatians. This is what it's about. You try and add works, you've lost grace and you're in a lot of trouble. Okay, we are saved by grace and grace alone. However, it is equally wrong to let go and let God. You have not been saved to a passive Christian life. I've received salvation, so now I just kick back and it all just unfolds and one day I get to go to heaven. Is not biblical Christianity. Just going to read another passage quickly, right? I just love this passage. You remember, by the way, whenever pastors use sporting illustrations, that's biblical. Paul used them all the time, which justifies me talking about the NRL from the pulpit forevermore. Maybe not. Anyway, all right, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Listen to this as a description of the Christian life, okay? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Don't you know that runners in a stadium all race, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. He's talking about being a Christian here. Run like you are trying to win. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I don't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I run the race to win, says Paul. They do it. He's talking about the Olympics, by the way. It's cool how old the Olympics is, isn't it? I know we've got the ancient and the modern, but it's still really old. They do it to compete for a crown. Now, that crown was celery, literally celery. They wove celery together, and those leaves on celery formed the wreath that you placed on the winner's head. Not even any peanut butter, just celery. All right? 
And Paul says, guess what? They go into strict training, strict discipline, and they run their hardest for salary. And he says, before you is eternal life with Jesus forevermore, being made into his likeness in that eternal undefiled home, I think you can run. I think you can discipline yourself. I think you can put in the training because you're competing for a lot more than salary. Right? That's the attitude that we bring to our Christian faith. Are we saved by running the race hard? No. But we are saved to run the race hard, to give it absolutely everything we've got. You are going to be made into the image of Christ. You're going to remove every spot and blemish. And there are two major factors for how that's going to happen in your life. Firstly, if you are a Christian, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in the life of everyone who repents and believes. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he begins to mold you from the inside out into the image of Christ. God does not give up on you at the moment of your salvation. The gospel is not only your salvation, it's your ongoing transformation. God is at working you this very day, if you're a Christian, to bring conviction of sin, to help you understand his word and apply it to your life. The spirit is at work in your life to make you into the image of Christ. Just think, Jesus was obedient to the Father, always. He loved to do what the Word of God says. And if the Spirit is working in your life, molding you into the image of Christ, then you will love to be obedient because you're becoming like Jesus. You'll love to do what the Word of God says because you're becoming like Jesus. The Spirit is transforming you from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ, and it's God's work in you. Praise Him. Right? All glory be to Jesus. He saves you and he takes the initiative in transforming you into the image of Christ. Praise God. Secondly, though, this new spirit nature within you desires to please Jesus, wants to glorify Jesus, finds joy in doing the things of Jesus. This new nature within you wants the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and being with other believers and serving them. It doesn't reject discipline, but this new nature within you wants to work hard at pleasing God. In short, the desire to make every effort to be without spot or blemish comes from the work of the Spirit within, and as the work of the Spirit within is transforming you, your will and desire comes into alignment. And following the Bible, following what God says, is not a bunch of rules. It's life, because you long to be like God. Right here, right now, if you profess faith in Christ this morning, and you go, oh yeah, Christianity just feels like a bunch of rules. That tells you right here and now you're not living life in the Spirit. If Christianity seems like a bunch of rules, you're not living life in the Spirit. 
and your flesh nature is kicking against the things of God. It tells you you need to repent. It tells you you need to get on your knees and seek the heart of the Lord again. Because the spirit within rejoices in the commands of God. Okay, that's the difference. We can see how we're doing. You may have grown up in the church, but you may not be born again of the spirit. You must repent. Give your life to Jesus. And then Peter says something amazing. He says we are to regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. The patience of the Lord as salvation. Why? Because there is still time for those who have rejected biblical teaching. In our context in 2 Peter, it's been the antinomians, those who believe there are no law, live as a Christian however you want. And Peter says there is still time for those who have rejected living God's way to repent and come to salvation. There are modern examples of this everywhere. There are churches and even denominations that are openly antinomian. You can be a gay or trans minister in the church, clearly rejecting God's word. They've rejected God's character to love. And if God is only love, then you've made him less than God. Yes, God is love, but God is also just. God is also holy. God is also jealous. Right? These are all equally the attributes of God. And to emphasize one over the other is to reduce who God is is. Right? We cannot do that. But what our passage is saying is, regard patience of the Lord as a chance for people who have gone down the antinomian path to repent and come back to the Word of God. That's our hope, isn't it? Our job is not to ridicule people out there in antinomian churches. Our job is to pray for them that they would submit themselves to the Word of God and so find salvation. Reject worldly compromises and put Christ first is our sincere hope. Peter then all of a sudden makes a transition to talking about the Apostle Paul, or more specifically, the letters that Paul had written. Now, he doesn't mention which ones, but... Most of the letters of Paul would be circulating around the churches. And before I mention anything else, I want to say this. The fact that Peter considered Paul's letters to have the same authority as the Old Testament scriptures is cool, isn't it? Right? He actually says they will twist the rest of the scriptures like they twist Paul's letters. He's actually affirming Paul's letters to have the same authority as Old Testament scripture. This from a Jewish man, Peter. So right here in your Bible, Peter is affirming the authenticity, authority of the letters of Paul as being God's word. Right? That's amazing. That's great to see that level of authority given to the New Testament in the Scripture. By the way, this is the slight problem if your Bible has red letters in it for the words Jesus says. I don't know why we do that. All Scripture is God-breathed. The red letters are no more authoritative than any other bit of the Bible. Okay, so just remember that. If you've got red letters, no different from the rest of the Scriptures. All God-breathed. 
I'm not saying you need to go through there and try and color them over with a Nico. Um, it's hard work. But anyway, all I'm telling you is they are no more authoritative than any other bit of scripture. So why does Peter shift to Paul? Well, it would seem that the false teachers were using Paul's letters to justify their position. We talk a lot about context in this church, right? That old saying, if you take the text out of context, you're left with a con, uh, right? Now, that's absolutely true. Scripture must be read in context. If you ever go to a church where all they ever preach is a verse from here and a verse from there, don't go to that church. Full stop, right? Because you are being sold a lie. You must read Scripture in context. Because if we don't, man, the Bible can say whatever you want it to. It's really great. Listen to this, right? I'm going to give you one verse from Romans. What if I based my entire theology off this one verse? Romans 3.20. For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Okay, church, I put it to you that no one will be saved by law and sin actually comes because we talk about law. So therefore, if we want to avoid sin, never talk about the law again and live however you like. Right? I've got a biblical argument here, Romans 3.20. Somebody should throw something at me right now, right? <laughs> He's close, there you go. Why though? Because I'm taking one verse out of context and I'm building an argument from it. And that is the danger of listening to preaching that goes that way. This is the art of foolishness. Paul says emphatically that we cannot keep sinning so that grace may increase. He's incredibly clear that our lives must change and grow in the Spirit, which is why we have to read context. Paul would say neither Jew nor Gentile will be saved by the law because there is no one righteous, not one. His point is not that we won't live lives honoring to God. His point is that we need Christ to be saved. The Old Testament looked forward to a time when the law would be written on our hearts and that was fulfilled at Pentecost. We are filled with the Spirit and are being changed into the image of God, changed from rebellious people to obedient children. That is the work of God that we see in Romans. Read to you another passage from Romans, Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It's clear from Paul. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Paul is abundantly clear in these things. And Peter says some are trying to twist Paul's letters to support living however they want, and they are wrong. Now, he does say Paul writes things that are difficult to understand, and I don't believe Peter is saying they're impossible to understand. He is saying, church, it takes work. It means reading in context. It means developing a biblical 
theology, working our way across the scriptures. And for most people, you won't become a Christian and straight away understand all of these things. It takes effort. It takes running the race to win, to understand the fullness of what the scriptures are teaching. Okay? That's what Peter is saying. Not that it's impossible. Gee, how does grace and works go together? Peter says, it's there if you put in the work. But you've got to be willing to put in the work. All of this brings us to the final part of our passage. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, know what in advance? Know the truth. Know that false teachers are out there. Right? He says, since you know this, be on your guard so you're not led astray by those false teachers who twist doctrine. How are you going to be on your guard, church, against false teachers? Peter says they're coming and they're coming to erode your faith. How are we going to be on guard? Know the Word of God. Put in the work. Put in the effort. Right? Know the Word of God. Who here has ever played Jenga? Jenga, you know, that wooden block game thing, Jenga? Some of you are lying. You've played it. Yeah, there's a few hands going halfway out, right? Yeah, look, heaps of us have played Jenga, and Peter's point is this. Our firm foundation is like Jenga before you touch it, right? You can jump around Jenga, and it's solid as. But every time you pull out a block, it destabilizes. And Peter says, every time you listen to a false teacher tell you that, you know what, the Word of God's not relevant to today, you take another block out. Or a false teacher's going to tell you, you know what, the Bible's got to be culturally understood. It meant one thing then, it means another thing now, and we erode our faith in Scripture just a little bit more and we take another block out. And the more we listen to false teachers, we keep pulling out the blocks until our whole faith is shaky. And all it takes is a breath of wind to knock it over. It's what false teachers do. Brick by brick, they pull down the firm foundation and create a house built on sand. What do we do? We grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Remember that Jesus came in grace and truth. We grow in our knowledge of grace and we grow in our knowledge of what Jesus taught us. Growing in the grace of Jesus means you grow in awe and admiration for what Christ did. Growing in truth means you unpack and know the Word of God. Grow in knowledge, says Peter. Grow in knowledge, because knowledge will protect you from the antinomians who want to tip you over. Now, I've said most of you will fall slightly to one way or the other in the church. There'll be the grace people in the church and there'll be the truth people in the church. The truth people in the church, everything you say or do and every ministry we do in the church are going to say every single time, show me that in the Bible. Praise God for you. You are valued, loved and necessary in the life of the church. But the Word of God says, grow in grace. Because it's not just about rules, it's about people as well. If you're a grace person in the church, you're the kind of person who'll always say, yes, the Bible's true, but have we thought about the impact on people? 
Is there another way we could present that where we're not going to hurt anyone? Right? Praise God for you. You are necessary, valued, and needed in this church, but you must grow in knowledge as well because we can't just operate according to grace. Okay? We need both groups of people growing in grace and truth. Okay? And that's what we need to be committed to in the church. The reality is there is right and wrong. There are spots and blemishes that must be fought to be removed from our lives. Both groups must appreciate one another, work on your own life, and grow in grace and knowledge together in the church. Finally, recognizing the full deity of Christ, Peter's closing doxology is to Christ alone, to him be the glory both for now and to the day of eternity. All glory be to Christ. To me, that sums up everything. All glory be to Christ because he alone paid the full penalty of your sin on the cross. All glory be to Christ as you live for him and his word from this day until the day you see him face to face. All glory be to Christ because he has at work in you to mould you into the image of himself. He is at work in you to conform you to the will of God. Your start, your middle, and your finish are because of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. So all glory belongs to him for now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we've read throughout Peter, the false teachers and their false message of living however they like. We read about them messing the word of God. But your answer is the same, Lord. It's to come back to you and your glory. Lord, you saved us. You've given us life. You're molding us into your likeness. You will bring us home and you will be our light forevermore. Lord, may we concentrate on Christ. May we embrace Christ. May that set us free from the temptations of worldly teachers that would erode our firm foundation, the rock of Jesus. Lord, we commit ourselves to you in your precious name. Amen.